Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, back in 2013, almost 10 years ago, there was a movie that was released that I imagine some of us have seen. It was a pretty popular movie. The movie was called Gravity. Has anybody here ever seen Gravity before? Okay, I think more people in this service than in the last service, but some of you have seen the movie Gravity. Well, in case you haven't seen it, let me give us the plot. In the movie, veteran astronaut Matt Kowalski do you remember who plays Matt Kowalski in the movie Gravity? George Clooney. That's what you were going to say, right? George Clooney. He is in charge of the Shuttle Explorers STS-157 mission. STS-157 mission to repair the Hubble telescope by the rookie specialist, Dr. Ryan Stone. And who plays Dr. Ryan Stone in the movie Gravity? Sandra Bullock. So we have George Clooney, Sandra Bullock. Out of the blue, Houston Control aborts the mission, warning that a Russian missile hit a satellite, causing a chain reaction, and now there's a storm of debris coming upon the pair of astronauts. Soon these astronauts lose communication with the mission control in Houston. So just imagine this for a moment. You're an astronaut. You're in outer space, far, far away, thousands of miles away. You've lost all sense of contact with human beings. That would be absolutely terrifying. As a result of the debris strike, both Stone and Kowalski must now make their way to the International Space Station. And be forewarned, Gravity is not the kind of movie that you watch if you want to relax and wind down after a long day. It's not the kind of movie that you enjoy with a bowl of popcorn. It is a very suspense-filled movie. In fact, some people characterize it as a scary movie because of how intense it is. It has you on pins and needles pretty much the entire time. Well, isolated in outer space and coming to grips with her mortality and the fact that she may die, Dr. Stone, again, she is played by Sandra Bullock, Dr. Stone, who by no means is a religious person, she offers the following prayer to God. I'm going to die, aren't I, God? I know we're all going to die. We're all going to die, but I'm going to die today. Funny that you ought to know, but the thing is, I'm still scared. I'm really scared. Nobody will mourn for me. No one will pray for my soul. Will you mourn for me? Will you pray for me? Or is it too late? I mean, I prayed for myself, but I've never prayed in my life. Nobody ever taught me how. Nobody ever taught me how. I'll tell you, for not knowing how to pray, which is what Dr. Ryan Stone says here, to me she offers a pretty compelling, honest, gut-wrenching prayer. It's a prayer made out of desperation, a prayer that comes straight from the heart. 
Uh, this morning at Asbury, uh, if you're just joining us, we are continuing in our series called Behind the Veil. It's a six-part series. And in the six-part series, uh, we are looking at, we are exploring, uh, we are learning from the stories of various women in the Old Testament. Not the New Testament, but just uh, the Old Testament in particular. Uh, these women lived in a culture, as we've said throughout these messages, they lived in a culture thousands of years ago, that simply because of their sex, simply because they were women, uh, this culture tried to repress their gifts, their contributions, what they were able to do. And yet even so, by God's grace and the Spirit's power, these women rose to the occasion in the midst of crisis, and they did remarkable, incredible things for God. It's difficult for us to calculate the kind of impact that they've had or where we would be today without them. They've left this incredible legacy for us. And so in these messages, and we're going to finish the series next Sunday morning, but in these messages, we're looking at the stories of these women, trying to see what their stories have to teach us about following God today in the year 2022. And the woman that we're talking about this morning, she is somebody who, like Dr. Ryan Stone in the movie Gravity, was in a place of helplessness and hopelessness. And from that helpless, hopeless place, she did the only thing she knew how. She prayed. And in doing so, she modeled for us a critical feature of prayer that I want us to focus on today, and that would be desperation. Desperation. And the person that I'm talking about, the person that I'm referring to, is the very same person whom our daughter, our four-year-old daughter, is named after. And who would that be? That would be Hannah. And Hannah's story is found and the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is the ninth book of the Bible. So we start with what book? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. Uh, Hannah's story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And so take a listen. Uh, the words are up here on the screen. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, the NLT, which is my preferred translation for preaching and teaching. There was a man named Elkanah, who lived in Ramah, in the region of Zuth, in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, of Ephraim. What the writer is doing is the writer is situating the story in human history by mentioning all these various names. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh, to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of heaven's armies at the tabernacle. The priests of the Lord at that time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. On the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Panina and each of her children, and though he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. So Panina would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Panina would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time Hannah would be reduced to tears, it would not even eat. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me? Isn't that better than having ten sons? We're going to revisit that comment in a few minutes. Once, after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. 
Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow. O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her, seeing her lips moving, but hearing no sound, he thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk, he demanded. Throw away your wine. Oh, no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I am very discouraged. And I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I'm a wicked woman, for I have been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. The entire family got up early the next morning and went to worship the Lord once more. Then they returned home to Ramah. When Elkanah slept with Hannah, the Lord remembered her plea, and in due time she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I asked the Lord for him. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we all say, thanks be to God. Uh, this is not a short passage. Ordinarily, uh, my philosophy when it comes to preaching uh, Scripture is less is more, but this is a, a pretty long passage that we read today. And there are a lot of names mentioned in this story, and so it's pretty easy to get lost. So let's begin at the very beginning. As this story opens up in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and I would encourage all of us to read this story later today or maybe sometime this week, but as the story opens up in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we learn about this guy named Elkanah. Can you say that name with me? Elkanah. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Elkanah. We know that he's from the hill country of Ephraim in the northern part of Israel. And we know that he's married to how many women? Two women. Now, of course, some of us might be wondering, okay, married to two women. What's up with that? What's going on there? That's kind of strange. That's kind of weird. So keep in mind that polygamy in other words, the act of having more than one spouse was practiced in Old Testament culture. Polygamy was practiced in Old Testament culture. In fact, some of you might recall that Solomon, David's son, who was king over Israel, do you remember how many wives Solomon had? He had 700 wives. Oh my goodness, and he was supposedly the wisest man in the world. <laughs> having 700 wives doesn't seem very wise to me, but that's beside the point, but Solomon did have 700 wives. Polygamy was practiced occasionally in Old Testament culture. Now, to my knowledge, and this is important, nowhere in the Old Testament does God ever sanction polygamy. Nowhere does God ever bless polygamy or say that polygamy is appropriate or polygamy is okay. At the very most, God tolerates it. God puts up with it. And actually, by the time we get to the New Testament, Polygamy is condemned on several occasions by the Apostle Paul. I believe Paul condemns polygamy two times in 1 Timothy and then again in Titus. 1 Timothy and Titus, they make up what we call the pastoral epistles. But in the Old Testament, because this series is focused on in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, polygamy was a permissible practice. Again, God wasn't crazy about it, God wasn't thrilled about it, but God allowed for it. And one of the main reasons behind polygamy back then, thousands of years ago, it wasn't simply because of sexual attraction, physical desire. Certainly, that played into it. But one of the main reasons 
was the desire to have children. The desire to have children. Because, and this is important for us to recognize, if a man died in that culture, in that time period, without having any children, there wouldn't be anybody to carry on his name. And actually, Pastor Barbara alluded to this last week when she spoke about leveret marriage. We have a slide about leveret marriage uh, up here on the screen, leveret marriage. According to leveret marriage, if a man died childless, then the closest male relative, normally a brother, but if a brother was unavailable or unwilling to do this, another male relative could step up. But the closest male relative had an obligation to marry the widow, that way the widow was looked after, and then to have children with her, and the firstborn son would carry on the name of who? Not the biological father, but instead the firstborn son would carry on the name of the deceased person. Because having a son to carry on your name once you had passed away was a huge deal back then. And so in this story, Elkanah has two wives. What are their names? Hannah and Penina. Every time I read Penina, I want to say Panini, like Panera Bread, but it's actually Penina. Kind of like when we talk about Orpah, you think Oprah, but it's actually Orpah, but anyway. Hannah and Penina. Penina has children. Hannah doesn't. But the fact that Hannah doesn't have any children, it doesn't seem to bother Elkanah. It doesn't seem to faze him because he has deep love for Hannah. Love that he doesn't seem to have for Penina. And so that makes Penina what? Jealous, bitter, resentful. And so what she does is she mocks Hannah, she berates her, she harasses her, she makes fun of her. She knows Hannah's insecurity. And so she constantly points out the fact, she exploits the fact that Hannah has no children. And then to make matters even worse, Elkanah, he's aloof to all this, seemingly. He either doesn't know or doesn't care about this feud that's going on between his wives, and then he's not empathetic to Hannah over the fact that she doesn't have any children. In fact, listen again to what he says in verse 8 of chapter 1. As Hannah, she's upset about not having children, so this is what he says. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having ten sons? You don't have to be a therapist or a counselor to recognize insensitivity when it's there. Was that a sensitive comment? No. Was that helpful? No. Did he mean well? Maybe, yeah. Clearly he loved Hannah, but he wasn't in tune with her emotionally. He doesn't recognize this deep pain that she's in. He's clueless. And so poor Hannah, she has a counterpart who's harassing her, making fun year after year. She has a husband who's not connected to her emotionally. Yeah, he might love her, but not connected to her emotionally. And then she has this deep desire to be a mom. But she can't be a mom. That hurts. Some of you have been there before. Do you know one of the trickiest days to deal with as a pastor and a worship leader, and Pastor Barbara, you know this, one of the trickiest days to deal with as a pastor and worship leader is Mother's Day. Because what day of the week does Mother's Day always fall on? 
doesn't fall on a Monday, Tuesday, Friday, Saturday. It always falls without fail on a Sunday, the very same day that the people of God gather for worship. And so, of course, there's an expectation, even though Mother's Day is not in the Bible, there's an expectation that people have that we will honor moms and recognize moms and celebrate moms, and rightfully so, because motherhood is a noble vocation given to us by God. But to be honest with you, Mother's Day is a bit of a minefield because you have people who lost their moms, missed their moms, you have other people who had a bad relationship with their mom, a relationship that they don't want to think about, and then you have other people who want to be moms and they can't be moms. And they come to worship, and they're reminded of that through all the recognition and celebration. And so I know of a number of people who avoid coming to worship altogether on Mother's Day. It's not difficult to imagine Hannah as one of those persons here she is, a faithful follower of God, loves God, faithfully devoted to God, yet God does not seem to honor her desire to be a mom. You ever been in a place like that? You ever been in a place of hopelessness, a place of desperation, when you want something so bad and so fervently, but you have no control over the outcome? When all you want is for the diagnosis to go away. For the marriage to get better. For the spouse to stop screaming. When all you want is for the finances to pick up. For the runaway child to come home. For the boss to respect you. For your mom or your dad to finally say to you, I love you. I'm proud of you. I am so honored to be your parent. What do you do when you're in that place? That place of complete and utter dependency. Well, all you really can do is acknowledge how small you are, how tiny you are. Reach out and grab hold of the one who is so much bigger than you and grander than you. The only thing you really can do is pray. Pray. Pastor H.B. Charles, who I believe serves a church uh, here in Florida, Jacksonville area. Well, H.B. Charles tells the story of this woman who was a part of his congregation. And every Sunday morning, without fail, this woman would pray the same prayer during service. It was kind of distracting to the other folks, but she would pray the same prayer out loud during service. She would say, oh Lord, thank you, Jesus. Every Sunday morning, she'd open up her mouth and she would say that same prayer, oh Lord, thank you, Jesus. The youth in the church who sat beside her, they would make fun of her because they knew she'd be saying that same prayer. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Well, finally, somebody approached the woman and they were curious and they said, you know, you pray this same prayer. What's going on? Why do you do that? And the woman said, I'm just combining the two prayers that I know. You see, I live in a bad neighborhood. It's just my daughter and me. And there are some nights when I can hear gunfire outside. And there are bullets flying. And so I grab my baby girl, and we drop on the ground, and we hide behind a couch, and I just cry out, Oh, Lord! But then we wake up a few hours later, and the sun is shining, and everybody is okay, and the birds are chirping, and I just call out, Thank you, Jesus. And then later that morning after breakfast, I, I put my daughter on the school bus, and I don't know for certain what's going to happen to her when she's at school. I, I, I feel so helpless, and I just cry out, Oh, Lord! But then 3 p.m. comes around, 
and my baby girl steps safely off that school bus, and I just got to say, thank you, Jesus. And so when I get to church on Sunday morning, God has been so good to me throughout the week. God has blessed me in so many ways and more ways than I can recognize. And so I just take those two prayers that I've been praying all week, and I put them together. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. That's not too far off from what happens here in this story. Hannah has come to the very end of herself. She's in a situation beyond her control, and so she prays. The text tells us that one year after the sacrificial meal at Shiloh, uh, of course this had been going on for a number of years, but one particular year after the sacrificial meal at Shiloh, when the priests would make the customary sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel to atone for their sins, Hannah went to the house of the Lord and she prayed. And she was so deep in prayer, she was so deep that she was mouthing the words, but no words were actually coming out. So Eli, the priest, he sees all this from a distance, and what does he think is going on? She's drunk. She's had too much wine. So clearly Eli had never seen somebody pray before with that kind of intensity. And the fact that Hannah was so focused on what she was doing tells us that she wasn't paying attention to the people around her. She didn't care what other people thought. As far as she was concerned, the only two people in the universe were her and God. And as she was calling out to God, she was doing so with this keen sense of desperation. Have you ever done that before in prayer? Have you ever come to a place where you are so broken and so hurting that you just fall on the ground? And you cry out. I remember some years ago talking to a pastor friend of mine who was going through a divorce. It wasn't his choice. He found out that his spouse had been unfaithful, going all the way back to when he was in seminary. And he wanted to work things out and stay in the marriage and go to counseling. His spouse didn't want that. And so she left. And we were talking about this. And he said, Chris, this is the worst season ever been through. But I got to tell you, it's completely changed my prayer life. And I was kind of taken aback, and I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, there are moments where I'm so broken and hurting, I can't even stand up. I just fall on the ground, and I curl up in a fetal position. I'm a grown man. Here I am curling up in a fetal position. I just bawl my eyes out. But it's in that moment, as strange as it might sound, it's in that moment that I can actually feel God holding me cradling me and enveloping me. I realize that God is all I have and God is all I need. Praying with desperation has changed my whole outlook. It has drawn me closer to the Father who loves me and cares for me and yearns for me. When was the last time that we prayed like that? When was the last time that we fell to the ground and we cried out, believing that there is somebody who hears us who knows us by name, who meets us in our helplessness, even as he met Hannah well over 3,000 years ago in Hannah's helplessness. Hannah wanted a baby so badly, so desperately, so fervently that she was willing to do whatever it took, even if it meant letting that baby go and giving that baby back to God. Check out again the promise, the vow that Hannah makes in verse 11 of chapter 1. 
And she, that would be Hannah, made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime, not just his childhood, not just his young adult years. He will be yours for his entire lifetime and as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord. His hair will never be cut. Now, what's going on there? Well, keep in mind, and I've said this before, that Jewish culture is very visual. Uh, it's very tangible. Uh, some of you have been to a Jewish wedding, and I've given this example in the past. What happens at a Jewish wedding? Well, oftentimes, the bride and the groom, they'll stomp on a piece of glass, and they'll break the glass. Well, the reason for that, my understanding is, is that marriages can be broken. Marriages can be shut. Marriages can be they can fall apart. And so intermarriage with trepidation and reverence, knowing that marriage can fall apart and be broken just like glass can be broken. The stomping visualizes that. And so what's going on here, Samuel's hair will not be cut. Well, that was a sign, a visible sign that he had been set apart by God for priestly or pastoral work. The longer the hair, the better. Folks, I'm so glad that's no longer the case. <laughs> Otherwise, as your minister, I might be in trouble, but... That was the case back then. The larger point, though, is that Hannah wanted a baby so badly that she was willing to give this baby over to God. And evidently, she didn't consult Alcana, her husband, when she made this vow, showing how determined she was to make it happen. Hannah was desperate. She allowed that desperation to infiltrate her prayer life and become a defining feature. Here's my closing question for us. How desperate are you and I when we pray? Because it's in our desperation that we meet God, that God shows up, and God responds. There was a pastor who was visiting in the hospital going to see some church members. Well, all of a sudden, as she was walking, she came upon this woman she didn't know. The woman was standing in the hallway, and she had her head up against the door, and she was beating on the door, and she was banging, and she was saying, let me in! Let me in, let me in! And the pastor's thinking, what's going on here? And so she came up to the woman, and she said, let me help you. And she tried to open the door, but the door was locked, and so she grabbed a supervisor. The supervisor had a key and let the woman in, and the pastor followed. The woman was trying to go into the chapel of the hospital, and the woman was all over the place, and she was pacing back and forth, and she kept saying, he, he can't die, he can't die, he can't die, he can't die. And the pastor said, hey, time out. What's going on? Who can't die? My husband. He had a heart attack. And the pastor said, okay, well, can I pray? And the woman said, yes. And so she grabbed the woman's hand, and she prayed this very calm, gentle relaxing prayer, maybe even a bit reserved. And the woman interrupted her. And she said, let me do it. Lord, I need you right now. Please, please intervene. Show up. Heal my husband. Please. Amen. The pastor stayed for a few more moments as long as she felt useful. And then she left. She came back to the hospital the next day. She found that same woman. She was standing outside the door of the ICU. And she said to the pastor, Hey, pastor, the doctor says my husband's going to pull through. It's going to be okay. Oh, by the way, really sorry about that crazy person you met yesterday. 
And the pastor said, you weren't crazy. You were desperate. And she said, well, I guess the Lord heard one of us. <laughs> and the pastor said, yes, the Lord heard you. God hears desperate prayers. He heard that woman's. He heard Hannah's. He hears our own. It doesn't mean that he'll answer them exactly as we want God to or according to our time frame, but God does answer them. God does respond. God welcomes desperation. God encourages desperation. And in that desperation, Almighty God meets us in a huge way. Be thankful for that. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.